Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Dave Webb, Director of Campus Engagement here at Mondavi Center. Uh, thank you very much for coming out this afternoon for the forum at MC. Uh, this is the fourth uh, program of a series of free events that contextualize the arts. And the name of today's uh, discussion is Can an Image Change the World? Um, there will be a spirited interchange here on stage, I'm sure. And afterwards, we would like to open up the uh, questions to you. There are some uh, microphones, and I know it's an intimate group, but microphones will allow you to uh, state your succinct question for UC Television's benefit as well as everyone else here in the room. Um, let's see. Let me introduce today's moderator. Jay Meckling is a professor of American Studies. He earned his graduate degrees at the University of Pennsylvania and joined the UC Davis faculty in 1971. He directed the American Studies program here from 1978 to 1988 and was appointed to the California Council of Humanities in 1992, becoming its chair in early 1994. He received the UC Davis Academic Senate Distinguished Teaching Award in 1993 and was elected a fellow of the American Folklore Society in 1998. Uh, Jay will introduce tonight's panelists, today's panelists. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm going to introduce our panelists here in just a moment, but I wanted to say also that this is uh, this panel that we're having today. The discussion, of course, leads into Kim Fuchs' talk tonight. And I also want to point out that there is an exhibition at the Nelson Gallery right now on war and photography, war and representation, so that there really is a series of events that are about the representation of war that I want to encourage you to be able to go to here, see at the gallery, and so on. Uh, we are going to uh, talk a little bit today. Each panelist is going to take a little bit of time to make some points about the common theme here, and that is whether or not an image can change the world. And of course, we're focusing on images of war and images of conflict. But we also, at some point, are going to open it up to the audience because we do want to have a as Dave said, a lively exchange. So let me introduce the panelists and, uh, and then we'll begin. Immediately to my left is Kim Fook, who of course is our honored guest uh, today and tonight. And she's actually uh, going to speak last on the panel, but uh, she gets to be introduced first because she's on my left. Uh, to her left is uh, Eric Schrader, who is in the uh, campus uh, writing program the university writing program, and he also teaches in American Studies. Eric and I taught a course last fall on uh, war and memory in American Studies, and a lot of the work that we did in that class was on uh, photography and images as part of memory. Eric's expertise, his own writing research expertise, is on Vietnam. He has taught courses on the 1960s and on the Vietnam era both in integrated studies and in American studies. And so Eric has that kind of perspective to bring. And to his left is an actual photographer, a, a working photojournalist, um, Ken Kamenich, who is a staff photographer for the San Francisco Chronicle, but that only begins to say what he does. He's helped found a uh, documentary photography gallery in San Francisco called the Exposure Gallery. His work has been featured in lots of magazines like Time, Life, People, Fortune, and Newsweek. And in 1987, and this is, of course, the most significant thing in many ways, he received the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Philippine Revolution. And he's also won other awards for his photographs, including the World Press Photo Award 
and the SPJ Distinguished Service Award. So these are our panelists. And the first person to start us off, I guess, is since uh, Vietnam is going to be on our mind no matter what we do, um, maybe have Eric uh, begin us and then we can, uh, then we can move to Kim Kamenich and then Kim Fook. Thank you, Jay. Uh, as Jay pointed out, my, uh, my interest, my academic interest has been the Vietnam War and the way it's been represented in American culture. And I'm particularly interested uh, in a slightly smaller question than can an image change the world. I'm interested in the, in the effect that uh, the photography, that the images of the Vietnam War had on American culture. And uh, many of you probably know that Vietnam has often been called television's war but I would argue that just as powerful as the, the influence that television had on us was the influence that print media in general had on us, that uh, many of the images that we're familiar with we're familiar with often in, the, in both of the different mediums. Uh, we know them from print and we know them from television as well. And so what I brought today is a series of four photographs that I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I think that uh, they all might be uh, familiar to you, certainly uh, one of them will be. And uh, it's interesting to note that uh, of these four photographs, three of them also uh, are, w might be familiar to you in video format because they were very famous news clips. Uh, they, were on, they were shown on television, often in edited form, uh, as well as they appeared on the front page of the newspaper. And the first image I have, uh, this is a photograph taken in uh, June 11th, 1963 in, uh, in Saigon. Uh, this is a photograph taken by Malcolm Brown and it's a photograph of what were then the escalating uh, Buddhist demonstrations in downtown Saigon. And uh, the Buddhists, when they uh, were planning something, would, would routinely contact the media and have the media be there for those events. And after a while, though, most of the photographers and journalists got tired of showing up for these demonstrations, and they stopped coming. And at this particular demonstration, uh, Malcolm Brown was contacted the evening before and told that there was going to be something special. So he was there along with the television photographer. They were the only two people on site that particular day. Uh, and he took this, this photograph that was then displayed in newspapers the next day in the United States. Uh, there's a video of this as well. And, uh, and there were subsequent demonstrations. There was a whole series of these photos that ended up being taken between uh, June and October of 1963. And these photos were the first, I think, indication to the American public that there was something going on in Vietnam that uh, was beyond their grasp, something that the newspapers weren't reporting. And, uh, and I think that before that time, uh, you know, Vietnam hadn't got a lot of coverage in the American press. It really was not on most people's world map. And these photos really began to shake people up. Uh, and the other thing that shook people up, I think, was the... Was the uh, was the kind of commentary that these photographs produced. Uh, the most memorable comment about this particular photograph was uh, Madame Nhu, who was the uh, unofficial first lady of, uh, of South Vietnam, who, uh, whose husband, uh, I'm sorry, whose brother-in-law was responsible for trying to suppress the Buddhist riots. And her comment on this particular photograph was that it wasn't anything to be excited about. It was just another Buddhist barbecue, was the way that oh. she described it. 
This next uh, photograph was taken in uh, 1967 by an army photographer. There are similar photographs taken, uh, as Kim pointed out to me earlier, there's a very famous one by Larry Burroughs, who was one of the most famous of the American photographers, uh, the journalistic photographers. This one was taken by uh, Ron uh, Haberl, who was actually an army photographer. He was assigned to the particular unit doing this. Uh, in, 19, in 1967, this became a kind of standard operating procedure in the war. It was known as a search and destroy. And uh, when, the, when the military went into some villages that were seen as being in, uh, in uh, VC-controlled uh, areas, they were told that they could uh, uh, pretty much do what they needed to do to eliminate, uh, to eliminate resistance in the area. And so part of the standard operating procedures in some areas was to simply level the village, was to get out your Zippo lighter and set the hooches on fire. Uh, the interesting historical note about this particular photograph, it's taken in one of the Milai hamlets, which of course were to become famous uh, a year later when the, Mil when the events of the Milai massacre became uh, known publicly. Uh, one of the interesting asides about the Milai massacre, of course, is that the man who really uh, made it newsworthy, who brought the story to us, was Seymour Hirsch, who many of you are probably now following in a lot of the reporting that he has done on the uh, Iraq war. Uh, the interesting thing from my point of view as somebody who has studied the period is that when Hirsch began to break the Milai massacre story uh, and public opinion polls showed that most Americans didn't believe the story, that they thought that the media was fabricating this particular story because they didn't think that Americans were capable of that kind of behavior. This is probably the most famous image. This and the next one are probably the two most famous images of the war. Uh, this was a photograph taken by Eddie Adams on February 1st, 1968, at the height of the Tet Offensive. Uh, it shows the, uh, the, the uh, chief of police of uh, Saigon. His uh, men have just rounded up some uh, Viet Cong suspects, and it, it, this picture is what it looks like. He it executed, he simply walked up to this man and took out his pistol and shot him in the head. Uh, this particular... Uh, this particular event was actually captured on video as well. It was actually shown on the news. It is probably the most famous video uh, image of the Vietnam War. This and the images of the helicopters being pushed off of the uh, ships at the end of the war. It remains a very powerful image for a lot of veterans who saw that particular image. Uh, but this image was actually shown on national TV the next morning. In the actual video image, uh, when, he is when the suspect is executed, uh, if you ever see the original photography, it's, it's horrific. There's arterial blood coming out of his head. And, and so uh, the network actually edited for television. They cut away and they, uh, they fixed the pictures so you didn't have to look at the most gruesome part of it. But it was pretty evident what was happening. The interesting thing about these photographs, of course, that were taken at, during the Tet Offensive is that before the Tet Offensive occurred at the end of January 1968, the majority of American people supported the Vietnam War. And within one month after Tet, the public opinion polls had turned against uh, the war. And of course, that's when, Nixon, uh, when, excuse me, when uh, President Johnson came out and announced that he would not be running for re-election. And that was really unprecedented in American politics at the time, that you would have a sitting president who was not running for re-election. And uh, a lot of historians have argued that the media coverage of the war was partly responsible for that decision on Johnson's part. Uh, the final image is the one that we're really here to talk about today. And uh, 
I think at this point I'm going to let this image speak for itself and we're going to move on to the other panelists. Good afternoon. Um, I'm here to talk about the, um, the business of image making from, from the photographer's point of view. Um, Ernie Pyle in his book, uh, Here is Your War, talked about, talked about what he did as uh, collecting in any given day a worm's eye view of a situation. You know, you can only be one place that day and uh, for the purposes of the, um, what he was writing that day, um, it was with the, the particular unit he was traveling with. And uh, I'm going to show you some pictures I made from Iraq uh, in 2005. Um, so let me get organized here. Um, I traveled three, three different times to Iraq in 2005, um, pretty much the month of uh, June, the month of, just one second, let me get this all organized, there we go. The month of um, June, the month of October, and uh, the month of December, we followed uh, one, one uh, group of soldiers, the 2-7 Infantry from Fort Stewart, Georgia. Uh, Anna Bodkin was the reporter, and uh, we asked to travel one. Uh, again, you have to understand in this this era, it's uh, it's different than it was. I mean, actually, let me show you. Um, um, let me let me start at the beginning here. Um, the way this works, the, the the reason a photograph is iconic. That by the way, this graphic is from uh, Richard Zakia's book, um, Image and Perception. Uh, he's an RIT professor, and I'm stole this liberally here. So, um, the, the person sees a photograph and it conjures something in their head, whatever the experience might be. I mean, if I say right now, um, Bill Clinton walking in Paris, you could probably conjure a picture right now of that um, because of what you know about Paris and what you know about Bill Clinton, you can conjure an equivalent image from your memory. And the still photo works a lot like that. And um, that's, that's the, the, what, we're, what we try to do when we're out in the field is, is, first of all, convey a worm's eye view honestly and fairly. And then we, we attempt to look for the photos that really nail the human issues, the things that resonate with somebody who, who, who might never get to Iraq or to Vietnam or um, any, any of these places where these conflicts are and, and, and cause, um, cause them to think. Uh, the, the, the famous Joe Rosenthal photo from Iwo Jima, um, I just want to talk to you about tech, technology for a minute. Um, this was a, a couple of frames on a day, uh, in, in one day, which was the, the film was shuttled back out to the, the ship and then the ship got the film to Hong Kong where it was transmitted via radio waves um, to the United States. It took days. Um, and that, that's the difference between then and now, and the idea that the photographer now has um, instant photographs to make. I, I essentially take a laptop computer and a, a, a satellite transmitter that is about the same size as a laptop, and I'm in the worldwide photography business. I, just, I go directly to our newsroom via the internet, um, via satellite. So um, when you think about this particular photograph, it, it was made in, 19, in, the, in the 1940s, in a period where there, you know, there was no television. There was, of course, some movie film being shot, but uh, it, it was shot with great difficulty, as were these still photographs. Um, you contrast that with where we are today, and you can see how a photo 
like this, like Joe Rosenthal's flag raising on Mount Suribachi, would have a greater resonance with the people. I mean, you can go home to your cable station and find yourself, uh, oh, I don't know, three or four, five hundred channels probably to choose from. All, all these channels are competing for your time. You, you look on the internet, you've got that as well. The power of the photograph in the, in the middle uh, part of last century was tremendous. I mean, there was Life magazine, there was your local newspaper, and, and there was no television. And I think we could make the, the distinction about Vietnam, the coverage then, yeah. there, there may be three broadcast channels when that was yeah. happening. Yeah. So, Let me show you some stuff from Iraq here. Uh, of course, I love doing work like this. This is what I enjoy most, is going into people's homes and schools and you know, watching people lead their lives. Unfortunately, when you're an embedded journalist working in Iraq, I was in Tikrit with the 2-7. Um, there was no opportunity for that because I, I never was able to travel independently. I, I, some newspapers do have enough of a, of, um, an operation in Iraq to actually have their own security and to try to travel unilaterally. It's, it's with great difficulty that you can do it now. From about the time we got there on, it's just extremely difficult and very expensive. So you just don't see a lot of human life kinds of pictures anymore. Um, the, mostly what you see is from embedded journalists who try to tell the whole story uh, as best they can. Again, this is again a, a, an army clinic for children in uh, a children's hospital in Tikrit. Lots of little dramas happening there. A teeth being tooth being pulled over here, and a re, the father's reacting to that. And and again, these aren't. This isn't really an image that has a symbolic quality that we've been we're talking about today. But I think. Um, that's what I'm talking about with this worm's eye view approach. You, you, you can't tell the big story. You, know? you can just hope that while you're there, putting in your time taking daily pictures, that um, an iconic photo that might cause some, um, what Eugene Smith, the great Life magazine photographer, called compassionate horror, or uh, something that would cause the person to think and possibly move them to action. So here's a few of the things we did out with the Marines on the, the um, Syrian border. Uh, they're sighting in their, their mortars at, uh, at night. That's about a 10-second exposure. Um, this is a raid on a mosque in, uh, in, in the same town by the Marines. This is a night raid in Tikrit the day, uh, a few days before the parliamentary elections. Um, again, I'm traveling with them. I don't wear a uniform, I don't carry a gun, I'm you know, as independent as I can be when you're, I'm riding around in a Humvee with the US Army in Iraq. And the idea is to show as much of the, the, the story as you can, the interrogations. I mean, th there was really nobody telling me I, what I could and couldn't do. I mean, th I think the one restriction was, you know, you don't want, because of this technology, I could actually transmit a photograph of an injured or dead soldier before the family was notified. So that's the one agreement we had, is that we, we would never do that. But for the most part, I, was, um, I never had any, any, anybody ask me to see the pictures ahead of time before I transmitted them. Um, photographs like this, every now and then there's a detainee on the right and the chain of command begins with President Bush on the left. So that's sort of the photo. I made from that day. But then uh, there's a lot of uh, photographs like this, the futility. Again, it, it, the, the problem with doing, her, photographing horrific things like this 
is that you've probably seen this before, you know? It's, it's, it's horrific, it's, it's, my God, I mean, look at what happened, you know, three policemen were killed, there two policemen were killed, a civilian was killed here. This is the captain from the police station trying to, trying to assess the situation, but you've seen it before. And, and what power does it have, you know? So that's always what we're dealing with is, how can I use photography, how can I use technique, how can I use composition, how can I use my skills as a storyteller to, to tell this story in a way that makes you, makes you think about what's happening over there. This is a blind man who was uh, caught in the middle of a raid. They were looking for his grandson who uh, uh, they thought might be involved with Al-Qaeda and Tikrit. And they've, they've raided his house and just completely terrified him. He couldn't see them, but he just heard these guys running around. Uh, reparations, this woman signing a receipt. They knocked over her... Uh, her wall with a with tank by mistake. This man's receiving money. Uh, the arm, his wife was killed when she was in a car that failed to yield and, and the army uh, uh, fired on the car and killed his wife. And you know, in terms of the icons, this is during my tour there, I, I, I can't say that I've got anything that measures up to the types of photos we're gonna be talking about today, but again, I did, uh, I did what I thought was best as a journalist is I went over and I put in my time and I think that's I think uh, we'll be talking about the photographer Nick Ut um, again just a tremendously brave long-term commitment by by Nick and his uh, when he was working uh, there and I mean the photos are, are just the result of that just the amount of time he was there and the level of commitment so um, I just very briefly wanted to show you something on on the um, on the internet. I mean, this is essentially where it's heading right now is the, the, the whole wide, um, uh, the internet is absolutely our, um, where it's all heading. I mean, I'm currently shooting video as well as stills, as well as you name it. I've got everything going. Um, let's see, do I have my web page here? Let's see. So typically a newspaper on its website will have um, lots of, uh, um, Lots of options now for the storytelling. It's a matter of, um, um, but in the case of Iraq, I, I did uh, sound as well as uh, video, as well as as my still photos that I was assigned to do. So um, that's one of the things we're up against now is the the fact that there there are um, amazing possibilities by carrying little digital. Video, uh, video cameras as well as audio recording equipment. Um, and so most newspapers at this point have some sort of a little multimedia site going here. This is an example of a, a night raid into Crit that, um, that I photographed as part of one of those. There it is. So this is, again, transmitted through a laptop on, a, um, on the internet. So. We got told they had executed raid tonight. We were going to have uh, six consecutive houses. Went in and started knocking out houses. Every each house we went to, we had to pull out uh, every mail. So you can see the the sort of uh, the other possibilities that are there for us now. It's not as though I need to be a big TV crew anymore traveling, you know, with 15 different boxes of gear. Now I can, 
I can work essentially with my still camera and maybe one more little thing on my shoulder that, that allows me to, to work like this. And the sounds are there and the, the action is there. So again, that's, uh, that's sort of where it is today, coming from the, the 4 by 5 inch speed graphic negative that was shot on Iwo Jima to the, the type of technology you see today. And that's, that's sort of where most photojournalists are, are working today. Thanks, Kim. Kim Fook. My okay. turn. Your turn. Wow. I don't know what I have to say. <laughs> but um, my picture is a thousand works. Um, actually, I'm really thankful for that picture. It's a powerful gift for me. I never thought I was that little girl and became who I am today. It's a lot of work, but let me say something, the beginning of that picture. Um, when I ran out of the, that fire, I thank God for the first thing I learned that my feet weren't burned. So I could able to run out of that fire and then photographer, he was there. Even I never know. So one more thing I learned in that day, I call photographer is Uncle Ud. He's my uncle now, <laughs> a part of my family. He not only to do his job, to take a picture and then run away, but also he helped me. As I learned that he rushed me to the nearest hospital and he left me there and he ran to his uh, dark room so to, to make the film and to have that picture. And then he went back to my village to learn what about, uh, about my name and what happening. And he followed up my life forever. It just, not only the job the photographer doing, but it's about relationship. It's a wonderful, it's a really powerful, and I can learn that. Um, one more it just amazed me um, that he was very young. He's about 22 years old. And um, he followed up my story. And then um, actually about myself, about 10 years later, I realized that that picture is a really big impact the entire world. And um, when I saw that picture for the first time, I was shocked. Um, I just came back from the hospital. My, my dad showed me, he cut that picture in the newspaper and he, 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 he showed me that is your picture, Kim. 
And I say, oh my goodness, it's so ugly. It is terrifying. And um, I couldn't believe that I was. That is my picture. And of course I have to realize that true because my brothers running with me and another side is my cousins and I, I was in the center and I got burned like that. It's, it's uh, um, I don't know how to say it, how terrified I was. Um, I learned a lot from what happened to me and I'm so grateful for the picture right now. I could able to go back to work with this. This is my choice. And um, I work for peace. Because I realized that even myself, when I saw that picture, I'm so uh, amazed how Uncle Ud, the photographer, he dared to be very close to that fire. He should, he, he, he should be killed. But is, is he a really hero in that moment? Because I saw on the, the, the film, they film everything that happened in that moment. Uh, the beginning, the airplane dropped the bomb, and then the bomb exploded. And I was from the fire, run out of that fire. And I saw, uh, it seemed like a soldier, but I'm sure that Uncle Ud, <laughs> yeah, he, he was there, just very close. Yeah. It's just amazing. Um, and um, I think it's, um, right now, it's a wonderful thing that I learned that a lot of people, uh, maybe, I may show uh, the, the picture that, um, I have a second picture to offer you right now. Um, when, um, when my friend take another picture with my son Thomas, is he's here with his first birthday. And I say, wow, so beautiful. So I say, I have to create something uh, connected with old picture. So I can explain to you um, about this picture. The picture that you see is here is a picture of the, the symbol of war, and I had no choice. But this picture is a second picture. I have my choice. It's a symbol of love, of hope, and forgiveness. Okay, I get into the picture. You see my back? And I put the old picture on. It's mean. I still carry on my past. I won't forget it. And then you see my scars with all my back and compare with beautiful skin, 
of my traumas, it means something new coming. And up here, you see my smile? It means hope. And I whisper him, I have to remind him what happened to his mom when she was a child. And you see the way he listened to me? But he looked forward in the future and not look back. That's why you now see his face. And the whole message of this picture, the war cannot kill my life. The war cannot kill my hope. And the war cannot kill my future. And I said here, we cannot change history, but with love we can heal the future. And you can see the point right here with my smile. That is my mission. I have to let people know, especially young generation and everyone in this world. They have to know how horrible war can be. But how beautiful if everyone can learn to live with true love, hope and forgiveness. So if everyone can learn that, we don't need war at all. And it's a big challenge for everyone, it is. If that little girl can do it, everyone can do it too. So that is the meaning of the picture. So, yes, I believe the picture can change the world. Thank you. You should know too that the Canadian documentary filmmaker has made a story, of, has made a film of Kim's story, and uh, I, under, I guess it's going to be available through A and E Network. Is that is that right? So um, there's a aside from tonight's lecture, there's also a documentary that you can go and watch uh, that elaborates Kim's story of, of reconciliation and forgiveness. So I thank her for bringing that to us. Before I open it up to the audience, I thought I would pose just a couple of questions maybe to the panel and then we'll open it up. And it's suggested by a couple of the comments and that is uh, that Susan Sontag, the great critic, wrote a, a book, the last book that she wrote really was regarding the pain of others, which is about war photography, which is about uh, the history of war photography, but more than that, it's about the moral relationship that we have to photographs. What right do we have to look at a photograph that depicts the pain of other people? And, and we've looked at several photographs here that are about pain, and some critics have even said that there's a, a, a kind of, of numbing to human capacity for evil that looking at too many of these photographs will do, that we get used, as, as Kim said, the photograph he took in Iraq of the, of the scene of carnage right after the bomb went off at the police station. So I guess the question I'd like to pose is, uh, 
Should we be sh looking? Should people be looking at these photographs? There's a, there was a, a spread in the New York Times last week entitled Man Down, um, and it had several photographs, including a soldier that was in the process of dying while those photographs were being taken. And a letter to the editor of the New York Times was just published a few days ago by one of the high-ranking officers in Iraq criticizing the newspaper for publishing those pictures. The New York Times also published some video on its website. So I just wanted to open up this general question of should we be making these images available to people? Is it a good idea for people to see some of the most horrific images of human suffering or is there a moral point to looking at these photographs? I sort of think that as citizens we need to look at many of these photographs, that we need to see what's being done in our names in places like Iraq and if we feel that these things are being done in our names and we don't agree with them then obviously we need to speak out against them. Uh, but you know it's it's a question of information too. I think we need to be informed with what's happening and uh, and it's, it's simply a responsibility that we have uh, to look at photographs. As, as someone who goes into these scenes from time to time, um, I'll tell you that the, I think the worst thing I could do after putting myself in that position is not photograph it. Um, in the heat of this moment, you, um, you, you should always photograph. I mean, you can always decide not to show it to someone later, but if you, if you don't photograph, and there's a way to always do this in a, there's, there's sort of a, a as, as Kim mentioned, there's a relationship between the mm -hmm. photographer and the subject, and that's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, there are times when I was working in El Salvador or in, in uh, some of the other places where the person, I, I showed up and the person expected me to photograph. Please tell my story. I mean, you know, that's, that's part of what I do is, is make sure the word gets out, you know. And um, as far as the pornography of it, the idea that it's, there, there's something uh, exploitative or voyeuristic about it, I can certainly understand some people, especially those in the military, um, understanding that they don't want to... Uh, participate in that. I mean, when I was getting credentialed in El Salvador, that's what the guy said to me. He said, uh, I'm not here to provide bodies for your pictures. I just want you to know that going in. And that always stuck with me. And the point is, there's, there's a very literal um, forensic way to do this kind of work. And then there's a way that will stop people in their tracks and make them think. And that's what we really are out there to do. Did you want to comment on that, Thank you. Do you? Well, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a tough question. It's a tough moral question. Uh, the way that Susan Sontag puts it is that we have to earn the right to look at those photographs. And so that opens, of course, the whole question of, of what does it mean to earn the right to look at one of these photographs? And does that mean that you, in looking at the photograph, then have to commit yourself to doing something about the scene, uh, working in some way? in relationship to the scene. Um, and you know, I invite people to go and look at the Nelson Gallery in the art building and take a look at those war photographs as well and think about that question, ask yourselves that question. I wanted to ask another kind of question and, and that is whether people like professional photojournalists like Nick aren't gonna be put out of business 
pretty soon. You showed us some of the technology. There already is a book of photographs done by um, American soldiers uh, in Iraq Mm -hmm. uh, with cell phones now that also are cameras and with all the digital cameras. Uh, We know that the Abu Ghraib photographs were were vernacular photographs taken by people. Between uh, blogging from the soldiers and photography from the soldiers, are they putting professional photographers and reporters out of business? Are we reaching the point where the participants themselves are going to be the primary documentarians of the event? I think a lot of it has to do with proximity. I mean, like, as I mentioned, you can only be one place. I mean, the, the, the difference between what you see in a, from a CNN studio or any network doing summarizing what happened in an entire country or an, or an entire planet over the course of a half hour is one thing. What I get is those guys that day. And um, if you take the idea that there are guys all over Iraq with their cell phone cameras happening to be in different places, somebody's going to come up with a picture that's going to be the picture that tells the, a story about Iraq that day that I couldn't tell because I simply wasn't there. So, of course, there's that. But, um, you know, I, I think that what we're trying to do in a... In a on a higher level in a, in a way, I guess, not so much a raw feed level. And um, it, it doesn't really matter, you know, what kind of camera you're using if a plane is crashing into the World Trade Center, you know? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many years of journalism school you had. You know, if you're there, you're, that's the picture. So we invest a lot of effort in researching where to be and, and how, to, how to get these photos home um, in a, in a timely manner and in a way that will, will again, I, the, the hope is always to, you know, inform and, and motivate the readers. I mean, that's that's what we do best, I hope. Um, there was a film just out recently called The War Tapes. Have anybody, has anybody seen it? Anyway, it's, um, it's an example. Of, it was entirely shot by the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And um, exactly. I mean, there are situations where I was essentially in most of those situations, even the behind the scene situations in their shoes or their housing units and things. And there's just certain pictures I can't make. You know, again, it's sort of a little tango you're doing. I mean, if I take a picture of a guy in his underwear doing something strange, that's going to have an effect on what I get to do the next day when they leave the base and go do, you know, their, their jobs. So, again, there are some of those kind of gotcha pictures that I experience and sometimes photograph, but sometimes don't show. Point is, it, you know, it, it's about getting to the picture I really came to take, which is an, a picture that says something about this point in history with regard to daily pictures in a newspaper. You know, what can a daily newspaper do about, about that? So it's it's a tough call because there's all sorts of gotcha stuff out there and it has to do with where you are and um, yeah I, I get some of it and you know it, it doesn't it's not newspaper stuff I mean that's the bottom line a lot of it's just not newspaper stuff one of the things that worries me a little bit and then people may want to comment on it and then we can open up to the audience is that I know that a lot of young people college-age students let's say aren't actually looking at a lot of images. Um, when I taught a course a few years ago in which I showed some footage from the Holocaust and liberation of the camps, there was a class of 150 students and none had ever seen that imagery before. I had assumed that part of our visual history was we all knew what the 
concentration camps, the Nazi concentration camps, looked like. And I began to realize at that time that we really are uh, fairly innocent in many ways about these images. So while we're fretting a little bit about who should see the images and who shouldn't, uh, it's possible that a lot of people who should be seeing the images aren't seeing the images. So I wonder if anyone had any thoughts about that. Well, it's one of the great ironies because we have so much more access to these images. Uh, you can see them on the internet. You can find them with great ease. But you have to be looking to find them. Yeah. And I think you're right that there isn't a there isn't a sense anymore that there is a shared body of photography that we need to be familiar with. And uh, it's, there, there's almost an argument there for it being part of a curriculum. But because I don't know how well <laughs> people are going to get it, <laughs> it's not there. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Well, should we open it up to the audience and let them start asking some questions of you all? And uh, we have uh, a couple of microphones out there. I know. And uh, I if you will go to a microphone, that will help. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, I'll try to convey your question or comment. Okay. Um, I guess it's, it's partly a comment. I've, I've uh, sort of thought and read about war for a long time and about journalism, oh, etc. But uh, I think that Iwo Jima picture kind of is one way to get the point across. I think basically um, if the military had their way or the government, they would probably have us look at pictures like the Iwo Jima picture, maybe the Marine in dress uniform, maybe the Marine helping the children, giving them candy. In other words, that's not what war is, but it looks good. And then if the, what the photojournalist's job is, if they want to affect going to war, is to show us what war really is like, which is what I think those particular Vietnam pictures did, and I probably the a few things that have come out of Iraq. I think it's interesting to look at the Iwo Jima picture because a lot of people don't know that was the second picture taken in that, of that event. The actual raising of the flag was less dramatic. It was a, I've seen a picture of it. It's straight up and down. It doesn't have any motion to it. So they didn't like it, so they had him go do it again. So you get this real dynamic uh, diagonal line and lots of vertical lines. and lots, it, it, Artistically, it comes off really good. And of course, that's the one that they want us to see. So I think, I think in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the first victim of war, they say, is the truth. And there's a book to that uh, talking about that. And I think we all start off with this romantic view of war, which white people go. And then by the, somewhere along the way, I think usually visually, we see pictures of what it really is like, which is horrible, and we finally say we don't like it, at least for temporarily. That's my point there. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And, and part, of that, part of that point there is this whole issue of authenticity, what counts as a, a photograph of what really happened, because we count on photography to capture a truth of a moment. And right now, the truth that a photograph captures is sort of in question. I mean, the, as you say, the famous Iwo Jima photograph has a whole history to it. There's a whole book devoted to the story of that photograph, but we could probably choose a lot of other more recent photographs about, around which that, would, that same story would be true. We would have to ask, to what extent was something posed? Uh, was the photographer himself or herself starting to make the scene happen through the process of being there and asking for the photograph to be a certain way? I think it's an interesting question. Well, and of course, this is uh, something that isn't new. Uh, one of the things that Jay and I looked at uh, last quarter when we were teaching this course is we looked at photographs from the Civil War, and a lot of those photographs were constructed. You know, they're held up as the original icons of American war photography, but they were arranged in certain kinds of ways. 
So that there's a long tradition of that in photography, of arranging, of staging photographs. Now, my main point isn't so much that something's staged or not staged. We can get off on that. Uh, photographs always lie. Yeah. But um, because they're leaving out at least what you didn't put in the photograph. But my main point is, is that warfare, in order for people to go to war, they have to believe in its romantic yes. qualities. And so those are the photographs the military wants you to see. The last thing they want you to see is some little girl with napalm on her yeah. or somebody being shot in the head by the chief of police. So it is the responsibility of photojournalists to show us what war really like. That's my point. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, that was certainly true with Vietnam, too, with the uh, lack of censorship of photographs, that the photographs that started coming out, I mentioned earlier with the Tet Offensive, if you look at the photographs that Larry Burroughs took in the, uh, in the Siege of Hue and how American wounded were loaded on tanks, and uh, people found those photographs devastating, you're right. And, you know, those photographs uh, were a large component of that turning the public opinion against the war, seeing what was really happening. We've been told that we were winning the war, and all of a sudden... It doesn't look that way. I think, too, that, that you know, a, as it's evolved from combat to cat and mouse, um, it's a different kind of situation to photograph. I mean, you you don't see the person, the armies, or the Marines are are, are essentially trying to engage and, and uh, fight. I mean, they're they're just not there. It's, it's, so, for someone like me, who who spends a lot of time, spent a lot of time riding around in Humvees. Um, the most ethical essay might have been to photograph the rear end of the gunner, because that's pretty much the most of the time. Or, the, the, you know, I, I know of a photographer who did an entire essay of a little square window that he photographed all these different sites through, because that's essentially what they do, is they get in their little spaceship for hours at a time, and, and, and that's the reality. And it, it doesn't... Um, you know, with exceptions of absolute moments of pure terror and horror, that's what it is. It's it's a it's a very methodical process of patrolling neighborhoods and highways, and and it's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to tell a story about. So that's one of the things you do when you spend time there. Is you realize if you're again aspiring to tell it. You know, from the really as a soldier's experience, and in a way, it has to do with their boredom sometimes. So, so tell that to your editor. Yeah, Eric. Eric has he should speak for himself, obviously, but Eric has interviewed a lot of Vietnam vets for the book that he published and for other things that he's worked on. And from talking to you, I know that their story is that being in Vietnam for most of those soldiers was ninety-five percent boredom and five percent sheer terror. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, that's the same. That's the story that Kim is telling, but it's the story the writers tell as well. Uh, they have the same experience the photographers have, yeah. which then, of course, creates a problem when they come to write a novel or a memoir about <laughs> war, because most people won't read a memoir or a novel that's ninety-five percent boring. <laughs> Do we have another question or comment from the floor? Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for coming. It's very moving for me to, to be in the same room with you. Um, my question is, I've always been moved by that photograph, and it is the little girl, but also the boy on the left with his mouth so distorted. And I believe you just said that was your brother. Could you tell us a little bit more about him? Oh, okay. This is my brother's. 
is a, he's older than me, and this is younger than me. Is uh, my brothers and my cousins, they all living in Vietnam, but this one, he passed away two years ago in Vietnam. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, I really miss him. It's hard for me. Now talking about the picture, I know he's gone. It's hard. Thank you. Two years ago, after my brother died, I decided I have to go back. And I took my family, my two boys, my husband, when the same place, when they dropped the bomb. And uh, it's just amazing. Um, Like 33 years later, at that moment, um, I'm so grateful that is different. I'm so happy to see my husband, my children, they in that moment with me. It's uh, wonderful. And my family is so happy to see me again. <laughs> it's a, a lot of change. They change a lot. And actually, it's, um, I think it's a war is ending. Now a young generation, they have to move on and they learn a lot uh, of course, they have a lot of things have to be done, but um, I think it's, a, it's a, um, going a good thing right now. As a, in the news, you see Vietnam is open, um, a lot of uh, relationship uh, with another country. So I think it's the war is it's been there, but it's not they not focus on anymore. There was another, yes. We have time for one more question. Yeah. Could you comment on the issue of not sh- of the government not wanting to show photographs of soldiers coming back in flag-draped coffins and how that's related to war imagery? Well, the, um, the, there was a great effort to, to prohibit the press from photographing the coffins as they came back, but you'll find that last year the Pulitzer Prize for Photography was given to a photographer who did nothing but photograph the Marine Corps unit that does that helps the family receive the bodies. So um, that part of it's changed there. What what happened was I think it was a you know, it, it seemed like the thing to do to control that process of showing dead soldiers, re, the bodies of dead soldiers, and it came back to it came back to bite them and I think that's how why the the system was changed. And uh, it's, you know, it, it really has to do with the process of where in the process it is. I mean, if, it's, if the family has received the body and it's a funeral, it's okay. But it, so the, the thing about the, that's, the, that's just changed recently, it's the, the Denver, the uh, um, Todd Heisler from the, the, the Denver, the Rocky Mountain News uh, did the story. And uh, it was an amazing set of pictures that, that actually showed the grief that the soldiers who accompany the body back feel as well as the family and and the whole thing so it was a, a it was a, a big mistake that the government uh, you know on certain on a certain level tried to uh, deal with by allowing certain photographers to do certain in-depth stories
Well, we'll come to the end of the time that we have for this panel. I do want to thank you for coming this afternoon. So I want to thank the panelists for some stimulating conversation. Thank you all. Thank you.